morning. All right, we are going to be back on the lectionary this morning, so woo, ordinary time, let's go. So uh, we're going to start out in 2 Kings 5 today, so if you have your phone or a Bible, flip open to 2 Kings 5, everyone's favorite book, 2 Kings. I know you came to church today and you're like, I hope he goes and preaches 2 Kings. Alright, 2 Kings 5, uh, starting in verse 1, we'll go to verse 13, 14, and uh, I'm reading uh, off the NRSV translation this morning, so it may be, may be a little different. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aaron. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served as Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went and told his lord, just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Well, go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. And he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. So when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. But then Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. So he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, and he will learn that there is a prophet in the land of Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be made clean. But Naaman became very angry and went away saying, I thought that, was, that he would surely come out for me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and he would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar and the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned away in his rage, but his servants approached him and said, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something really difficult, would you have done it? How much more when all he said was, Wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, and according to the word of the man of God, his flesh was restored like that of the flesh of the young boy, and he was clean. This is the word of God. What an interesting story. Naaman and Elisha. And uh, we like at Mission Hills to open the conversation to all of us to get involved on Sunday morning so that this doesn't become obscure uh, words on a page for us on Sundays. So our conversation starter today is, have you ever made a great trade, an exchange of some sort, or found like an amazing deal on eBay or garage sale or whatever it is? Have you ever made a great deal, an exchange of some sort? Uh, take a couple of minutes and talk amongst yourselves. Two, 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 three.
who made the greatest deal for sale? Nancy? Oh, Nancy says she got Bob really cheap. I don't know if anybody can beat that. Maybe we should just stop there. Anyone else? Anyone else ever made a really good trade? Well, it may, it may sound like a silly question uh, to start us off this morning, but uh, I think a lot of times when we read obscure stories like this, we tend to forget that uh, the world of the Bible in many ways is still a world of people trying to, to trade power for power, trying to make bargains for bargains. And in many ways, it's the same type of world that we live in today. So what I want to do this morning is a little different. I want to walk through this uh, story again and uh, see the different messages that we can glean from uh, this power structure narrative that is unfolding before us. So you still have your Bibles open. Uh, let's look back at, at verse 1 and walk through this a bit and see what it may have to say about God's economy for us. So Naaman, Naaman is the commander of, uh, of the army of the king of Aram. Your, uh, your Bible may say Syria because it's modern-day modern day Syria is where, where our story starts. He was a great man and in high favor with his master. So from the very beginning, we see what will be a hierarchical structure, the way this narrative is laid out. So even though uh, Naaman is a great commander, a general, he also has a master. And you see this like master, lord, servant language throughout. So he is in high favor with his master because by him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. So sometimes we forget uh, we, we have the Hebrew Bible. So this story is told from the Hebrew perspective. And what the author is essentially saying is, oh yeah, you see this uh, Syrian general? When he wins a war, uh, he wins because our God says so. That's kind of funny. The man, though, a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. So leprosy is a skin disease. Uh, and this would have kept Naaman from obtaining full honor. So he has, yes, he's a great commander, but he cannot enjoy his military success because of this skin disease. So not only is it a physical disease, but it socially isolates him. So Naaman, we have this, this larger-than-life figure, this physical disease that ails him, and that's going to propel our narrative. Verse 2. Now the Arameans, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel. So uh, they've actually attacked Israel and taken uh, slaves back. And she served now Naaman's wife. She goes and says to her mistress, If only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, and he would cure him of his leprosy. So here we have our first uh, Lord statement. So the servant, who is the slave that was taken in this raid, it goes up and says, Well, Naaman's my Lord. If only my Lord knew what I knew. The servant is the agent of God's transformation. How many times have we seen that in Scripture? So the story is set in motion by the slave girl, and we are left to wonder what might be her motivation for wanting Naaman's transformation. After all, he did steal her from her family. Verse 4, So Naaman went in and he told his, his lord just what the girl had said from the land of Israel. And the king of Aram said, Well, go. And I will send a letter along to the king of Israel. Now, is, is that what the girl said? 
you see how it instantly goes from uh, my Lord, if only he knew there was a prophet in Israel. And what does, uh, what does Naaman's Lord do? His Lord says, oh, well, power is going to talk to power here. We're going we're gonna to go straight to the king, right? So power appeals to power, verse 5. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten sets of garments. He brought the letter uh, king to king, the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, uh, know that I have sent uh, to you my servant. So the king sees Naaman as his servant. And you will cure him of, her le- of his leprosy. Good thing that no one in politics today is bribed and paid for. So he takes with him all of this money. He uh, takes uh, all of these talents of silver. So what this actually is, if you can imagine, uh, it's, it's like 675 pounds of silver and about 135 pounds of gold. So uh, the king of Aram isn't really messing around here. He's He's making a serious proposal. So the king of Israel, verse 7, he, he reads the letter and he tears his clothes. He's like, am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure him of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to quarrel with me. So the king of Israel instantly thinks this is some sort of, uh, like he's provoking this international conflict. I mean, after all, uh, we know at one point Naaman has raided this king, right? So Naaman has raided Israel and taken people back with him to now be his slave. And so uh, now Aram and the Arameans are coming with all this money to try to get something from them. So the uh, king of Israel naturally doesn't know what to do. And this may even be an indictment on him on how he sees himself as not able to be an agent of transformation for his God. Right? He doesn't even see himself as one that could do what name and needs done. You know, when I was uh, when I was living in Austin, so I, I, I graduated from Baylor, I moved to Maui, did a year-long internship. Andrea and I started dating, and we, we moved to Austin to live in the same place. And uh, I worked for a hotel there. Really interesting experience. Uh, it was a luxury golf resort, and I was bellman and valet. So all-day parking uh, Mercedes and Bentleys and all sorts of other crazy types of cars and uh, taking people's bags up to the room and doing all the stuff that a bell hop does. Not the greatest job, but an interesting experience to say the least. And at this particular golf resort, every summer a billionaire's uh, men's club rents out the entire thing. All four golf courses, the entire resort is closed for a few handfuls of billionaires. They call themselves the Conquerors of the Sky. Real cool, huh? So uh, so this billionaire's uh, men's club rents out the entire resort. It is absolutely absurd. We hired, we hired people uh, that were like professional calligraphy artists to do calligraphy in the entrance that just had their like weekly activities that they could go sign up for. Because this was like a really big deal. So. I had the night shift and it was 1 a.m. and uh, the owner of a major airline calls down to the desk and naturally I'm tired and uh, the owner of this major airline has uh, heartburn and so uh, he, 
whenever you do this, you get whatever the person needs, right? So it's 1 a.m., this guy has heartburn, you figure it out. And so our, it's 1 a.m., the gift shop is closed, it has all the medicine and food and everything like that, so I go and find the key, open up the gift shop, drop off some money and a note saying that I just stole some antacid, and I take it up to this, uh, to this guy. When you're in a position of power, you usually can find a way to get what you want. And that is still, in a lot of ways, I mean, that's what happens when you're at billionaire summer camp, right? You have heartburn, it's 1 a.m., you get what you want from, from, a, guy, from a guy like me that's working. Uh, and so this is, in some ways, the same type of situation we see here. We see power approaching power with a lot of money. But it doesn't quite work out like they thought. So the king of Israel tears his clothes. Verse 8, we pick it up. So then Elisha, the prophet of God that the Israelite girl talked about at the very beginning, he hears that the king has torn his clothes, and so he, he sends a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet of Israel in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he halted at the entrance of Elijah's house. So now we've gone from king to king to man, right? The text here says Elisha is the man of God. So we've gone down another peg. So Elisha sends the message. But being uh, Naaman and being in his position of power, he still rolls up with all of his chariots and his horses and his military prowess and his Bentley, and he halts that at the entrance of Elisha's house. Have you ever strutted your stuff? So Naaman rolls up with his chariots and his entourage, and what is he expecting? What's he expecting? He's expecting his power to be greeted with like power, but that's obviously not what happens. So verse 10, Elisha sends a servant to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be made clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that he would surely come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord, and he would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar and the rivers of Damascus better than all of the waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he went away in, in his rage. So Naaman expects that his strength is going to be met with strength. Maybe he even thinks that he's going to meet God in some way face to face. He is imagined as some sort of grand gesture from the prophet, that he would come out and wave his, you know, whatever over the thing. He was expecting something different. He wasn't expecting to be greeted by another servant. So we've gone from the king, I have all this money and I'm taking all my chariots, I want to meet the king so I can be healed. And then we have down the peg the man of God. And I don't even, he doesn't even come out me? He sends a little servant guy to come and greet me? I mean, how, how disrespectful. Naaman is just addressed by the servant, and we are at the lowest of lows in Naaman's mind. For, his, for him, the disease is a serious problem, and in his pomp and circumstance, he has shown that he is serious about wanting to solve his problem. And yet, the servant, the man of God, gives him a simple solution maybe too simple of a solution, just wash in the Jordan seven times. I wonder how many times we write off people that we don't think we can benefit from. 
there are often times where we see people that they, their friendship or our relationship with them may not work to our advantage, and I think typically we're fairly uninterested. I think that's where Naaman is here. He doesn't get to meet the prophet, and now he sees the servant. That per, that, that's just a lowly servant. He is not going to be able to benefit me. He's not going to be able to solve my problem. So he just says, you know, wash in the Jordan. It would be, I think, kind of the equivalent of if you were from Malibu and you came all the way to Waco, Texas to see this grand prophet, you're like from one of the most beautiful places in the country, you come all the way in the middle of central Texas and you meet uh, not even a prophet, but you meet some rando person on the street and they say, hey, take a, a bath in the Brazos River which is, if you're not familiar with the Brass River, it's kind of brown, and a lot of times there's weird stuff floating in it. And uh, You would be like, I came from one of the most beautiful places to take a bath in a river where I'm going to be more dirty if I get in the river. I don't think so, person. Uh, do we ignore the ordinary places of potentially God's blessing? Do we bypass that? Verse 13. So the servants approached him and said, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? How much more when all he said was, wash and be clean? So he went and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of this man. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. So it actually, so he goes off in this rage, and it actually takes another servant in order for him to get the message. So he is saved. Not only is our story initiated by a slave who is now his servant from actually the land that he's in, but his own servants have to tell him, why don't you just do this and maybe you'll be all right from the advice of yet another servant. I think God is trying to tell us something. So he goes down on the advice of yet another servant and he reluctantly reluctantly goes down to the Brazos or Jordan and is healed. He was healed by the simple waters of the Jordan. The seven times is actually sort of a would have been seen as a folk remedy. So he is actually healed by an Israelite folk remedy. Doesn't even need the prophet but is healed by this folk remedy. You still have your Bibles out. Look at this phrase at the very end of the text. It often goes un- unnoticed, but I read a really good note on this. When it says, uh, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy. You might read that and be like, eh, that's kind of weird, but it's the Bible, so I expect it. But it's actually a very, very helpful phrase. The Hebrew for young boy there is actually the exact same word as the descriptor for young girl, the slave that he had taken in his race. So in order to actually be clean, Naaman has to become like the very person that he stole from the land that actually is now the source of healing. So Naaman is finally, at the end of the story, given the very name of the girl that he had taken captive. And a lot of times our hope in healing is not found in the power and posturing that we think our hope and healing and 
security will be found in, but it's actually found within the person that we know if we associate with, with them, it's not going to be to our advantage. And that's hard to do. So the kingdom of God tends to be very different than the bargaining powers of our world. The kingdom is, interest, is not interested in mighty displays of power and military strength. The kingdom of God has no interest in making deals for, for our wealth. So who do you identify with in the story this morning? Are you Naaman in need of healing? Are you Elisha speaking a prophetic voice as agents of healing and transformation in the world? Um, I think in our culture today, we, off, we need a different kind of power in order to solve the problems that we have. Yet we still tend to look toward the powerful, the VIP, the wealthy, the celebrity, the CEO, the systems of security, our justified structures of violence. Rather than seek restoration in the healing, the ordinary, the mundane, the simple river, the servant, we still seek the grand gesture, the popular, the safe route of society. So today, may we have the courage to see the divine, the divine as simple. May we not only look to the servant, the person that we do not think can advance our status, but may we become the servant, be overlooked, in order to see that the kingdom of God is actually that the solution is within each one of us. Uh, this week, uh, uh, Ellie Wiesel died. I don't know if anybody's read his, any of his work, um, but I thought uh, one of uh, his quotes um, was really appropriate today. Um, Ellie Wiesel said, um, we must take sides. Neutrality tends to help the oppressor, not the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor and not the tormented. And Jesus exemplifies the pattern of the suffering servant, the peaceful lamb who comes amongst wolves and lived a life of servanthood and died in order to give ultimate hope, love, and life. Let's pray. God of all nations and all people, your son commanded disciples to preach and to heal throughout the world. So today, grant us the power by the Spirit to proclaim the good news of peace and justice. And as Mission Hills, may we become like the servant and gather all of humanity into life with you.